Week one, we talked about the love of a father for his son and love of a son for his father. God and Jesus don't just role play this so that we get it. They actually have genuine, deep affection for one another. And that serves as not just an unobtainable example that we can't even be a part of, but it serves as an invitation for us to step in to the kind of love that God has for the son and the son has for the father. Jesus invites you into that. Matthew 12, 48, he is teaching, he's in a building somewhere, Jesus is teaching, and as he's teaching there in the building, a man comes to the door, knocks on the door, pokes his head in and says, hey, you're your mom and your brothers are out front. They want to talk to you. And Jesus replies to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And you, as a standalone quote, you're like, Jesus is losing it. Like what? Your mother's out there. She is not going to like this. But he didn't say it to exclude his family. He actually said it to invite us in because the next sentence says, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. He wasn't excluding them. He was welcoming us in. That confidence that the son has in his father is that there will always be room at the table for more. I have a good friend who pastors in Tennessee, grew up in Southern Tennessee. His father was a pastor, his grandfather before him. And when he was a young man, he was a gatherer. People just always were attracted to my friend. They just always hung out with him. And he was like that. So one Sunday night, he said to all of his friends on the football team, why don't you come to my dad's church? My dad's preaching. They all came, which was fine, except for the fact that up until this night, his father's church had been entirely white. And most of the football team was black. They all walk in, and he said, it was as if you had turned the thermostat to 40. There was a meeting after the church service, and the board of that church told my friend's father, if your son ever does that again, you're out. His father said, let me save you time. I'm out now. He quit on the spot out of the love for his son and his knowledge that his son would always be inviting people. God looks at his father and goes, that's my boy. He's constantly going to be inviting people to the table, and there's room at the table for people. So that was week one. Week two, we studied Elizabeth and Zechariah, the difference between lack in our lives when we just don't have stuff or longing in our lives and how longing propels us forward. So those are the first two weeks third week here of our Christmas series. And uh, let's read from Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. This brings some of you great peace that I'm actually going to read a Christmas passage during the Christmas series. Hadn't happened so far, but here we are. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration which, when Quinarius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible story of you sending your son who you knew would welcome the world to sit at your table. We honor the history here. We honor your intention. We're grateful and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let, those of you that are note takers, let me uh, save you a couple of minutes here because every Saturday night I sit down and I ask myself, what do I want people to learn? What do I want them to feel? And then what do I want them to do? And I try and answer those, so I'm just gonna give you a cheat code, okay? I'm just gonna tell you what those three things are in case the sermon is so bad that none of those things actually fit with what I wanna do. But you're gonna know, at least from the beginning, what I was trying to do, okay? This is what I want you to learn, is that Christmas is just the beginning. Christmas is just the beginning. Christmas is very much a historical event and it has monumentous impact, but we look back on it as the beginning of a story, not a story that ends in its own. What I want you to feel is that you can be a part of the next Advent. Some of you grew up in church and every Christmas they had a little production and someday you got to be the wise men and some Sundays you had to be the donkey and some, you know, maybe, maybe you got to be Joseph or Mary, but you never really can go back in history and participate in that advent. But there is a second advent coming that you can play a significant role in, not in a play, but in reality. That's what I want you to feel. Which what I want you to do is I want you to begin to prepare your heart for those days to come because it will take preparation in order to participate. So this week we're talking about the idea of the now and the not yet, the presence of the kingdom of God, how it is with us, but is not with us in fullness. And we are going to read a lot of scripture. If I want to just stir your hearts, I can tell you stories. I've done it long enough that I know how to do that. But I want to stick close to the source here because I'm going to give you some ideas that maybe you haven't thought that much about. And I want to give you scripture to wrestle with, especially uh, as we, we go on. So hopefully you'll grab those notes and if you missed them, see me later and we can get those to you. If you're looking at them in the Bible app, hit save. If you don't hit save, they go bye-bye. And so top right corner says save. The first advent is a beautiful story, but if you follow the story, for the next 33 years can be fairly confusing. Most of Jesus's life on earth was shrouded in confusion, confusion over who he was, confusion over what he was doing, confusion over where he was going, and there's still significant confusion, not among unbelievers, but among the world about what he's all about. It's one of the reasons why Christmas is one of the religious holidays that the world embraces, because as a baby in a manger, he's not too threatening and he's not too confusing. And he's kind of safe that way. But the baby becomes a man, and the man said things about why he was here, and if we are to believe in him, not just acknowledge the history, but if we are to believe that he's alive, we've got to wrestle with those things that he said. One of the things he said is in Luke 12, 49 to 51, where he said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and were that it were already kindled. So it's something he hasn't done yet. He's I wish this was already happening. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, 
but rather division, which completely messes with our Christmas carols. Okay, what about Silent Night? It's really interesting to look at the Old Testament passages where the coming of Jesus is prophesied because the Old Testament prophets saw and spoke both of his coming as a baby and also his coming at the end of the age. And they mingled the talk in such a way that sometimes when we read it, it's hard to tell which arrival we're talking about. From the view of the prophets, it can make you wonder if they knew what to expect when Jesus came. Was he coming in humility or was he coming in power? Was he coming to bring peace? Was he coming to bring a sword? The Old Testament is full of prophetic words about the coming of a humble Messiah born in obscurity, a refugee in Egypt who would suffer and die. It's plain as day. But it's not all that we see. Often from the mouth of the same prophet. For example, prophetic passages, we see that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's like you're a little podunk town. There's nothing special about you. You don't even have a QT. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth from old, from ancient of days. So he's this, this prophesied, these humble beginnings, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son that shall call his name Emmanuel. So reading the Old Testament, the Christmas story would not be without reference. You would look back and you would see the story written by the prophets of old. The things that the prophets wrote and described include descriptions that are very different than how his life turned out, however. For example, there is an explanation of the crucifixion and those sorts of things in the Old Testament. We read Psalms 22:16. It's referencing the, the coming Messiah. The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That's a hat tip to the coming day of crucifixion. But you read the prophets and you study the arc of his life, his lineage, his birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. But then there are other prophetic passages that don't fit into that at all. 15 years ago, Becky and Bruce and Kelsey and I were part of a small group that uh, got hooked on watching this TV series, okay? That we would, and it was before the days of streaming, kids. You could, you actually had to take a DVD. It was silver and it was round. And you'd put it into a machine and you would watch what was on the DVD. And so we got into this and we would gather every Saturday night to watch a couple episodes or five. You know, if the snacks held up. We would, until the snacks were gone, then we'd call it over with. Uh, and uh, it was... It was a, this story called Jericho. It was about this little town in western Kansas, and uh, Denver gets nuked. And it, it's about how these people survived kind of in this post-apocalyptic. And it was very, you know, feel-good hit of the summer, but for, for sure. And we got to the end. I remember it was only three seasons. It wasn't very long. It ends very abruptly. I think they ran out of money. But when you get to the end, it's got a real bummer of an ending. Like everybody gets thrown into captivity and hauled off to jail. It's like, wah, wah, wah. that's how it ended. However, if you had the DVD, the box set, which I had, I don't know where it's at, don't ask, but I had the box set. On, on the last DVD, there was an alternative ending. 
Some of you aren't going to hear anything else I say. In the alternative ending, a bunch of them escape and go to like go back to Texas, which is obviously free for reasons that nobody doesn't need any explanation. But there's like this whole optional thing. Sometimes it looks like the prophets wrote an alternative ending to Jesus' life. Like you read through this and you're like, there's like, I get, is it pick A or B? Is this like a choose your own adventure? Isaiah specifically writes in Isaiah 53. He says he was, de they, he was despised and rejected of men. We esteemed him stricken. He was oppressed and afflicted. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That seems to be ending number one. But he also wrote in chapter nine, verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's like, God has some energy on accomplishing. You read these two and you're like, Isaiah, what, what are you thinking here? You got two endings to this story. I was listening to a podcast this week where a doctor was describing something called delusional disassociative disorder. And what that is, is there's a condition, a disorder that people have that allow them to create a completely other reality in their imagination and they believe it. And some of them are so influential, they convince other people around them that it's real. And they also believe the reality that you and I believe in. So they've got parallel universes going on in their head and they're completely comfortable with it. And you go, What's, sometimes I read Isaiah, I'm like, did you have that? Like, did you have that disorder that allowed you to give us alternative endings to the story of Jesus that sound very different because either there are two endings or Isaiah was wrong. And if Isaiah was wrong, the whole thing falls apart. If Isaiah had delusional disassociative disorder, then the psalmist had it too. Because the same psalmist that talks about his hands and nails being pierced writes later in the voice of God speaking to his son, ask of me, I'll give you the nations and the ends of the earth to your possessions. How do the prophetic voices of the Old Testament seem to intermingle these two different storylines as if they are one? It's really a product of perspective, okay? Now, one of my favorite places on the earth, Kelsey and I used to go quite regularly, haven't been for years now. If anybody's listening, feel free to invite. No, we used to go to Alaska a lot. And I love Alaska, love the people, love the land, love there's just everything about it, it's fun. One of our favorite spots in Alaska is about an hour and a half north of Anchorage. If you land in Anchorage, kind of surrounded by mountains in the distance, but if you go an hour and a half north, you get up into it, and you get up into a place called Hatcher Pass. Hatcher Pass is gorgeous. At, near the top of Hatcher Pass was this building. This was called the Motherlode Lodge. It was built in the 40s, and it was originally for people who were passing through who would stay, and it had a little restaurant in it, and then uh, later it was just a full-on hotel, and then before it completely closed, it was a jazz club that did not do well. Apparently not a lot of jazz musicians wandering the backwoods of Alaska. But it's been closed forever. And we would go up and we would always drive and get out, walk around the Motherlode Lodge. And at one point, Kelsey, those of you know who know Kelsey, Kelsey's a dreamer. She's like, you think we could buy this thing? I'm like, and what? She said, 
I don't know, put a prayer room in it, fill it with young people, you know, have a, have a prayer base. She goes, you think we could recruit people to come up and pray up here? I'm like, I think we could. Kelsey convinced the owner to let us do a walk through the building. And the whole, it's, it's a disaster. Like it's, you know, built in the 1940s in Alaska is like being built in the 1840s in the rest of the world. And it was just falling down. I'm like, oh boy, I don't think we can bite this off. And maybe a year later, it uh, completely burned to the ground. I was not involved. But um, so it's gone now. But if you go just a little bit past the mother load, you get to the top of the pass and you realize that these mountains that you've seen from Anchorage, this row of mountains, there's another row and another row and another row across the Alaska range, across the Brooks range. All, there was nothing but the only thing between you and the Arctic Circle is Fairbanks. Like, it's just insane how far it goes. You can't see that from the airport in Anchorage. You see a mountain, okay? So take a look at this next slide. You'll understand why I said this. This is how the Old Testament prophets saw the first and second coming of Jesus. They saw them almost like mountains lined up, one perhaps bigger than the other, but in a line. And when you see things that way, you can't tell depth of field. You can't tell how far those things are or not. So they see the greater mountain and they see the nearer mountain. They see it all. Are they right? Yes, they're right. But they, when they write about it, they mingle it all together. We live at a unique time in history. We see things from a different perspective. Between the mountains of the first advent and the second, we can differentiate. We can say this is what, in some respects, we have a clearer, and I wouldn't say better, but a clearer understanding of some of the Old Testament prophecies than even the prophets had as they spoke them. It was like a time release bit of information that the Lord said, I'm going to speak this to them. They're going to repeat it. And in the day when you need it, you're going to have it. You're like, does God do that? He does. He told Daniel secrets and said, wrap these up until they're needed later. There are things in the book of Daniel we don't understand. But they're hidden for a later time. And so this perspective of two advents, of a first coming and a second coming, to the prophets, they might have had some understanding of it, but they, they wrote about it in a way that it was all one. But here we are between the first advent and the second, we're going, wow, that's where we're going. And the whole world is looking back at the first mountain, saying, Oh, the birth of Jesus, which is unbelievable, and it's so beautiful, and we're so glad that we've had that mountain, but I'm here to tell you, it wasn't the only mountain, it wasn't the only advent, it only points to the greater one. Even though these two mountains are vastly different, separated by, you know, over 2,000 years, there are similarities in these two mountains, or these two, ad these two advents. Both of them were ushered in with birth pangs. What did the first scripture that we read said? It said, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. How did she know that? Did she like get a notification on her phone? Oh, glad I set a reminder. No, Debbie's got an idea. There are signs and they're pretty universal. There are birth pangs as a woman gets near the time of birth that her body prepares for the birth of the baby. And you know, Debbie, how many, how many births have you helped with? About 2,500. She's got a little equity here. She can tell you it happens along a certain way. 
The baby doesn't come when the clock says the baby's gonna come. The baby comes when those birth pangs engage and Mary says to Joseph, it's time. You see Joseph go, how do you know? It's time, I know. Everybody wants to know when it's time for that second mountain or that second advent, the return of Jesus. And Jesus fielded questions about this while he was walking on the earth, even among people who didn't fully know what they were asking. To them, he referred to coming birth pangs. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now, they don't even know what they're fully asking. What they're asking is, when are we going to blow this popsicle stand? Like, at what point do we overturn the Roman oppression and you become the king and we coincidentally become your kinglets? You know, like, how, when are we going to do the deal, the thing, the deal? And Jesus answered them, verse 4 on, and he's describing the end of the age. He's not describing the end of his earthly ministry. He said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places all of these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus tells them it's coming and the entire earth will cry out for my return. There will be signs you will see just as certain as Mary saw signs. Mary got off that donkey. She's like, I rode a donkey way too long for a woman who's nine months pregnant. Things are happening. I need a hotel room. Can't find a hotel room. End up in a barn. But her body goes through the same changes that the body of every woman has gone through up until that point of childbirth. And Jesus said, that was actually a sign. There will be birth pangs that the entire earth will go through that has to go through for the second advent. There are three distinct time frames that re relate to this second advent or the return of Jesus, okay? So when we, we talk about how and when he returns, three distinct time frames that I want you to get your head around and think about a little bit. I am far less concerned on putting dates on things as I am understanding the order of things. Does that make sense? Pretty much everybody who's put a date on it has really embarrassed themselves. All right, so we're not putting dates on any things, but we are studying the Bible and understanding the order in which things will happen. It's hard to read one specific passage and find all of these. So well, there's actually three passages together that when you read them together, it gives you different perspectives and you get the whole story. You see these three time frames. It's a little bit like those of you that have children. Sometimes you have to ask all three children what happened to find out what happened, right? So we can take these three passages and we can look at them from different angles and we can put together these three. Some of you are like, I don't see these three in one verse. They're not in one verse. You have to look at, at context, okay? Those passages, if you, I don't think I've got this in the notes, but if you're writing them down, uh, Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3, and Daniel 9, 27. If you get those three and you synthesize them, overlay them, you see these three passages. And they all relate 
to the timing of a final seven-year period of natural history, and they all relate to the idea of labor pangs. We have, like I said, a number of women in our congregation who work in this field. They would all tell you this is how it happens. These three passages form a prophetic picture of the trauma that the earth will endure just before the second advent or the birth of the millennial kingdom. For us to go from this age to that age, these things have to happen. Those of you that are going, I don't know how this world can last anymore. It can't, but what it's going through, these are the things it'll go through to get to the new age. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to know them because we are closer to that second advent than we've ever been in our lifetime. You're like, right. He's going to put a date on No, I'm not. I'm just saying that if we don't see it in our lifetime, perhaps our children were, will. If our children won't, perhaps our grandchildren will. And where do you think they're going to get the urgency for that hour if we don't carry it? If I'm not thinking about this, let me tell you what, my kids aren't thinking about it. So if it is not for preparation of our own hearts, it is for preparation of the generations to come so that when the birth pangs come, nobody says, I didn't see that coming. That's, that's why we talk about this stuff. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for the first mountain, for the first advent, for the manger. But prepare us, Lord, for the transition to Jesus on the throne. The protest against this, like those of you that are, quietly putting your feet up on the chair in front of you and pushing back. Uh, the protest on this is, you know, we've all, what Jesus said, no man knows the hour. And he did say that. He absolutely said no man knows the hour. Many of us grew up, grew up in the age of uh, the little book that was written, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88. Remember that? Yeah, nobody other than the people who had that book remember that because, you know, it didn't go very well. Okay. No man knows the hour is precisely why Jesus told us to watch. If we knew the hour, we would just set a reminder. But he said, no, 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 I want you to watch. Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Because you don't know when I'm coming. Because I'm not giving you a date. I want you to watch. We don't study these things to study dates. We study them to raise expectations. It is an error to say the end of the age starts on Tuesday at 4 o'clock. It is a greater error not to watch for his coming. That's as big a violation as setting dates at random. So here are th these three phases or three time chunks to watch for. Number one, the first prophetic time frame is referred to in the Bible as the beginning of birth pangs. Okay? If we look at the seven-year period that, that some would call the tribulation, the final seven years, this is before that. The very beginning of birth pangs. We just read from Matthew 24. It's also referenced in Mark in chapter 13 and Luke in chapter 21. It's the equivalent of G all three of your kids telling the exact same portion of the story. That never happens unless it's absolutely true. And so three of the Gospels tell this story. All three of the synoptic Gospels get it right the birth pangs are coming, a time of unrest, a time of disruption, wars, rumors of wars within nations, within ethnic groups, generations of fathers turning against generations of sons and vice versa. It is the very society and earth groaning for the birth of a Messiah. With this understanding, it is hard to watch the news and not hear the groan. 
Like, if you realize what's happening, how many of you ever, it's like, once you see something, you can't not see it? Once you look for this, you can't not see it. This morning, took my dogs out, listening to the news, walking my dogs, and they're talking about starvation in Somalia. Millions of people on the verge of starvation. Like, the earth is groaning for the second advent. No one should be surprised by this. How many of you have gone to Colorado and pulled over on the interstate, which I think is technically illegal, and took a picture of yourself by the Welcome to Colorado sign? Some of you? Okay, yeah. All right. If that sign surprises you, you have been sleeping all the way across Kansas. Like, I can't help you. All right? Because the mile markers count down. And down and down and down and eventually they get to zero and when you get to zero you're out of Kansas there's no more Kansas left so you know something's coming we have signposts to, so that in advance we know these things are coming here are a, a number of things that we are told to watch for I'm gonna go through this really fast this is why I told you to, to grab the notes because all, all the scripture verses supporting this are in the notes I'll give you some time to go home and think about this he tells us there will be false Christs or false leaders in the church. When we think of false messiahs, we think of cult leaders. I don't think it's that simple. I think there will be people who we would assume are in mainline Christianity, but have diverged so far from the true gospel that, that will actually be under that label of false Christ. And we will see more and more and more of it. He warns us of war military and political conflict, ethnic conflict, civic disorder. War looks a lot of different ways. A hundred years ago, it didn't. A hundred years ago, you lined up your armies. But now war happens at keyboards. It happens in unmanned flights. It happens so differently, and there'll be an increase and increase in that as the birth pangs of the earth increase. There will be famines and food shortages. We talked just a little bit ago about what's going on in Somalia. This is the crazy part. The earth produces so much food, we could feed everybody. We don't have a food shortage problem. We have a food distribution problem, and the distribution system is far more vulnerable than anything else. That should scare you because we've always thought it happens in Somalia because they can't grow food. It could happen here if they just can't get you the food. You're not growing your food. So this is going to increase as days come along. He talks about pestilence. I'm 55. I hardly ever run across a word that I'm just totally stumped by, but I have thought pestilence meant something else my entire life. I thought pestilence from the root word, pest. Like I was, you know, I was thinking bugs, okay? No, 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 no. Pestilence is biological. It's sickness. It's illness. Biotechnology and the worldwide pestilence as illness will be weaponized in ways that we've never imagined. It's way cheaper to send an illness than it is to send a missile. And you don't know where it came from. Birth pangs that we will see and even, I believe, are seeing. Earthquakes in various places. Troubles and commotions. You're like, what's a commotion? It's like he ran out of ways to describe it. There's just going to be trouble on the face of the earth. Great signs from heaven, like cosmic signs. But the greatest one that we will see an increase of, the one that I would like to leave off the list, but I can't in good conscience, 
is the idea of persecution. Persecution of the church by the enemy. And again, once you see it, you read through scripture, it's very hard not to see it. There's a list of verses there. If you read these verses, it's impossible to reconcile the Bible being true without the idea that at the end of the age, as those birth pangs increase, there will be persecution on believers. And while you all would say it, I feel compelled to remind you, we are no different or better than those around the earth. Those things just don't happen in other places. As the earth begins to cry out for the second advent, I believe we'll see them here. The beginning of these occur before this seven-year period. That is the first phase. Then there's a second chunk of time, a second prophetic time frame that is referred to as a worldwide time of peace and safety, counterfeit peace and safety, or increased labor pangs, which continues for the first three and a half years of that seven-year period. So that first section of time before the seven-year period. Then we're into the final seven years, and that first three and a half years is not what you might have thought it might be. Because many around the earth will say, hey, this is great. Things have calmed down. We now have an emerging world leader who is bringing calm in places that we never thought there would be calm. For those of you who are familiar with the phrase tribulation, this is that tribulation session, but it's the first half, the first three and a half years. Let me explain it this way. Are there events in history or in culture that you are a friend and a family member see completely differently? Oh yeah, Christmas is coming. Some of you have a list. Some of you have a list of topics on the fridge to remind your kids. Don't ask about this, 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 or this. Why? Because Aunt Susie's crazy as a loon. No, because Aunt Susie interprets those things differently. We don't talk about that. There is coming a three and a half year period where we will, as a body of believers, will interpret what is going on very differently than those in the world, because they will look around and say, "This is great." It's peaceful, it's calm, but there will be increased persecution on the church. It will not appear as a time of trouble for unbelievers who lack spiritual depth, but for those of us who are believers, we will see it and we will feel it. Joseph, the same angel that appeared to, uh, made a massive mistake in my notes. Gabriel, the same angel who appeared to Joseph like this was, some of you are like, oh, you made a mistake 10 minutes ago. No, I think I've been okay so far, but here I think I'm wrong. Gabriel, who appeared to Joseph in the first advent, also appears later to Daniel. Earlier to Daniel. I've completely messed this part of the message up, haven't I? Can I just go back like 30 seconds? I promise. I'll, I'll, I'll re- Gabriel comes to Daniel, Okay. And he tells him about the second mountain. He he reveals to him things about the end of the age, that there's coming a seven years that he euphemistically describes, describes as a week, each day representing a year. And he warned that in the very middle of those seven years, there will be an event that shifts everything. Daniel 9, 27. And he's referring to an antichrist figure here. He says, he shall make a strong covenant with many For one week and for a half of the week, he shall put to an end the sacrifice and offering. 
And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolators. What is he talking about? He's talking about there that in that tribulation seven years, the first three and a half years appear to be peaceful. This character comes out of nowhere, brings peace to the, the political world, and allows the Jews to sacrifice on the altar at the temple. Which right now, the temple isn't even... In, in the right spot. The right now is the Dome of the Rock. It's under Muslim control. But something happens in there. Either he drafts some sort of peace proposal between the Muslim and the Jewish world, or he obliterates the, the Dome of the Rock building, and they build a temple there, and there are sacrifices. He allows that for the first three and a half years, and the whole world goes, well, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Like, this is wonderful, but as believers, we're like, no, we saw a record of this. We saw this was coming. At the three and a half year mark, he commits what the Bible calls in other places the abomination that causes desolation. Which is, it's one of those phrases that if it didn't rhyme, it wouldn't freak people out so bad. Right? It's the abomination that causes desolation. What is it? I don't know, but it rhymes. You know, it's like it doesn't rhyme in any other language. So let dial down the emotion around that. What it is, is he comes into the temple where sacrifices have been made. He stops them from sacrificing. Many scholars believe he sacrifices a pig on the altar to Jehovah, the most, most offensive thing that could be done to the Jews. And in that moment, everything changes, and we go from the first three and a half years to the second three and a half years. Now, one of the real dangers that I see in the church right now is that the church, both the right and the left, in our own country, for example, is ripe for a political messiah. I mean, begging for it. If the Antichrist turns out to be, and I'm not saying he's coming from the United States, but if, if, if someone rose up in the United States who is a neoconservative, many will cheer and call him God's man of faith and power. If he is a neoliberal, another wing of the church will stand up and cheer and call him God's man of faith. God's man isn't running for office. Kings don't need elected. Now, I'm not anti-being involved in politics or running for office. I think more Christians ought to vote rather than less. I wish more of you would vote rather than less. I wish more Christians would get involved in the system. But I just don't want you to put any kind of eternal hope in that thing. Because... The political system ultimately is marching towards this, not towards our own good. Be careful where you find your Savior, and do not imagine that a man of any political persuasion can bring us to world peace. When that is announced, put your flag up, because that's not true. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, giving them a heads up of what the second advent would look like. He said, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Those of you that have been there in the birthing room, you know there are times when it feels like nothing's happening. Something's happening. Okay? Oh, no, no, I think nothing's happening. No, something's happening. I remember when Grayson, our second, was born. We went from nothing's happening to, Dr. Chow, you got to get in here right now, like in like 30 seconds. Because it felt like nothing's happening. That's the three and a half years. 
We are still at the beginning of the beginning. We're not even into that three and a half years yet. We haven't entered that, that period. We are at the most approaching the beginning of the beginning, but we're already seeing shades of this three and a half year season where terrible things are considered good, and, it, and if you even raise the issue, you're laughed out of the public square. In that three and a half years, those of you that have the nerve to go, I don't think this is good, will face severe persecution. We're not there yet, but we see the culture trending. The third prophetic time frame is referred to the great tribulation. The, the Bible makes a distinction between what it calls the tribulation and the great tribulation. The great tribulation, tribulation means trouble. If you say it that way, it, it kind of brings it down to earth. Trouble and great trouble. The last three and a half years referring to a time of great trouble. Matthew 24, 21 says, for then there will be great tribulation or great trouble, such has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be seen. That's super important, okay? Because there are those in the scholarly world that would say when the Bible talks about the tribulation, that that was something that happened in 70 AD. Oh, that all right. That happened when the, in, in 64, 65 AD, the Jews overthrew the Romans, threw them out of Jerusalem. They came back with a vengeance in 70 AD, uh, killed many in the city, took the city back over. And somebody will say, well, to them, that would have been the tribulation. However, we have this irritating passage in Thessalonians that says what we're talking about here, this great tribulation, will be the worst of times. 1940s. Six million Jews were killed. That was arguably worse than what happened in 70 AD. So if that wasn't it, then what is? Jeremiah even talks about it in uh, chapter 30, verse 7. He says, alas, the day is so great that there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. All of this points to a future at the close of the seven-year period where the earth is ripe for redemption and Jesus returns. Not as a baby, but as a warrior king who crushes his enemies and takes his rightful seat on the throne in Jerusalem. And that period will mark the greatest season of drama leading up to it, the greatest persecution of the church, but also the highest functioning of the church. As we operate in power and in signs and wonders, ushering in the second advent. I want to ask if, if the band would come back real quick. Daniel refers to this season in chapter 11, verse 32. The ending part of the verse says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. There's another translation that says, they will be mighty men who will do great exploits for God. In the midst of this great division, no political correctness, no fear of man, no fear of the devil, there is a victorious church that suffers like Jesus but can reign like Jesus. And then he invites them into that. It'll be the fulfillment of Acts 1.11, when the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven in the same way as you saw him go will come back. It's the fulfillment of that. Those of you who have stood faithful either till the end or your end, suddenly don't just watch the second advent like it's a Christmas play. 
You don't just observe it. You participate in it as sons and daughters. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means believers down through the ages who were faithful, perhaps were martyred, perhaps served the Lord for a century and then died. Those believers will rise first. And those who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with him. You study it out. He doesn't make a low flyby and pick us all up and go off to heaven so where we learn harp ministry. He actually descends to the earth and sits on a throne in Jerusalem and for a thousand years, we get to reign and rule with him. Passages in the Old Testament say that we will judge kings. We actually sit in authority on the earth and help him restore it to a garden of Eden. That is the mountain before us. And it's gonna come to pass just as certain as the first advent come to pass. In fact, it is a more concrete reality in your life because Christmas of past is something you can only react. The second advent, some of us in this room could participate in alive. And those who will pass will participate in it immediately. This is a more concrete reality for us than your grandmother's nativity set. It's realer than that. I know that's not a word, but it's a feeling. So this week, as we recognize his birth, and I'm so excited to gather on Christmas Eve and look back and celebrate Christmas and celebrate the sacrifice, I also want to take some time and intentionality to reflect of unto what. Okay, he's born, he comes, he died, he rose again, but where is this thing going? What's over that next hill that the prophets saw the two together, but we're in a unique position in history? How privileged you are to stand in that valley and see that advent and see this one. Sobering, but it's exciting. We're not all about history. We are about the future, and the future is bright for those who will endure. Stand with me if you would. This morning, I wanna close us out with a song that we always sing about the first advent, but I told you a couple weeks ago, this is actually about the second. Isaac Watts wrote this about the return of Jesus. I want that forefront in your minds as we sing this. Let's worship. Joy to the Lord, the Lord. 